we will by grace today observe the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's a church ordinance. We look forward to it. When I first came to pastor here, um, which is it's hard to believe I've been preaching here for 14 years. Y'all called me at the end of April. Um, there was a man who wanted to argue with me regularly about the Lord's Supper. Specifically that bringing accountability to the Lord's Supper, the, what, the same way Paul does in 1 Corinthians 11, it was hurting people's fe- feelings unnecessarily. And as I dug into the hurt feelings, I began to discover not a biblical view of the Lord's Supper, but a Roman Catholic view based on tradition and upon the error that you can get points towards your justification by participating in it. There were attenders who wanted communion communion served to them, not in memory of Christ's work, but to receive the whatever effects, maybe even magical effects from it. If they did that, then God might accept them in their understanding. Well, what was missing? Well, it's the same issue that's missing in our hearts all the time, not just those folks who were thinking wrongly about the Lord's Supper. There's something in us that wants to believe that salvation is by grace plus some of our observances and good deeds. It's built into our sinful nature. You know, if I have my quiet time, God will bless me on account of that, even today. If I go through the church, you know, things, then surely God will remember that. If I served in this way in the church, I think God's going to think highly of me for that. In the secular world, it's this, it's like this. If I divest myself of my privilege, of my ethnicity, and uh, of my claim to objective truth concerning gender, well, then I will be acceptable by this crowd. And they seem to be the, the crowd who really holds what's right. There's something in us, there's something in the world's message that says, do this and be justified. The Bible offers only one way to be saved and accepted. Not by the world or peers or even our feelings. It is this, salvation, redemption from sin, justification before God is by grace through faith alone in Christ. That's it. And unless you repent of trusting in yourself, well, you'll do as Jesus said, you will perish. Christ is our only claim because he is God's one and only son. I have nothing to boast in today. Even some of the good things I've accomplished, whatever they are, I have one boast that's unshakable. Because all the other claims that you and I have, somebody else is better at it. Somebody else can beat us at it. And there's also the, the person of God who is holy. But there is one foundation, one gift of righteousness that is unlike any other, that is perfectly acceptable and only acceptable to God. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us through faith in the person and work of Christ. He came to earth in love. The the second person of the mysterious Godhead, the one God in three persons, second person of the Trinity, the Bible says he added to himself human nature without sin, lived the perfect life we all should have lived, and then died in substitution for us, on the cross, raised on the third day, just as the Old Testament said he would. And so this Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he is the only acceptable payment to God our Father for our evil against God. And after all that, why would we dare then look to ourselves? It's because we live in a sinful world. 
and because we have a tendency to drift. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. It's around page 999, 1000 in the Bible that's provided for you there in the pew. If you're using that, please use it. Please avail yourself to it. And as you're turning to Romans, I just want to remind, remind you, there is only one way, according to the book of Romans, to help get a church in better condition. And that is to saturate them in the gospel of Jesus. To be rooted in the gospel of Christ. And so it's written by the Apostle Paul. He was a missionary. He was an apostle writing to uh, the church there and friends there in the church of Rome from Corinth to root them deeply in God's purposes, preparing them for his soon upcoming visit, uh, presenting to them the brilliant logic of the gospel in order to promote peace between the unnecessary tensions that existed between Jews and Gentiles. In the first three chapters, uh, the, Paul, the Apostle Paul emphasizes everybody needs Jesus, and everybody needs Jesus the same. It, it's not like um, uh, <clears throat> uh, Matt Goddard needs Christ, but Pastor Garrett really needs Christ. Now, some of you may agree with that point, but theologically, that's not true. We all need Christ the same. We're all sinners. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has evil in them, and everyone in some point, some form or fashion has committed evil against God. Whether they rank it evil or not, they know in their conscience that God gave them. And then when you hold up the mirror of God's word, we're all exposed as sinners, evil doers in God's sight. So the Jews need Jesus the same way as the Gentiles do, much to their shock. Uh, this debate partner that he's, uh, he has put up to answer these questions. It was not only the Gentiles who were stank in their sins. The Jews needed Jesus just as much. And they were in real danger because they were seeking to tie their salvation identity to their keeping of the law of Moses, which was not what the law was ever intended to do. It was to justify them. It was to show them their need of God. It was to tutor them unto Christ. And so every sinner needs not only their sins wiped away. Okay, think about uh, think about you with your hands wide open here. You've got all this weight and, 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 and debt from sin against God. You need all of that taken off of you. That's great. Praise God. But then placed in its place, you need the gift of righteousness. That's by faith in Christ. You need that credited to your account. And that's what we've been thinking about over and over again in the book of Romans. And so you, only Jesus can give you that. And so Paul's in the middle of taking on the Jewish Christian who is in danger of trusting in their works plus Christ to justify them. And he's telling them, you've got nothing to boast in. None of your, none of your observances are anything to brag about. There's nothing to boast in. The only boast we have in standing justified before God is in Christ alone. You can look at the end of chapter 3. You know, looking at the argument as it moves towards the end of chapter 3, God righteously righteous is the unrighteous before his throne by judging Christ in their place and imputing, crediting, crediting, gifting unto believers the righteousness of Christ by grace through faith in him. So think about this. Grace gives and faith takes. That's it. Faith's exclusive function is to humbly receive what grace offers us in Christ. All right. So let's pick up now where he's continuing on. He's been making it clear that this is what happened both by the testimony of Abraham, even of David in verses eight of verse eight uh, of chapter four. Let's pick up now in chapter four, verses nine through twelve. 
Is this blessing, he's pointing back to what he's talking about before, the blessing of forgiveness and justification. Is this blessing only for the circumcised then? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but also follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. This is God's word. Amen. Thanks be to God. So Paul elaborates further on the ending of chapter 3. There's no boasting by showing further how the Jewish patriarch Abraham illustrates that God justifies both Jews and Gentiles by faith alone. The bless, Look at the text. The blessing of salvation is for all who believe, verse 9. The blessing always precedes outward observances, verse 10. The blessing is signified after received by faith first, verse 11. The blessing is in following Abraham's faith, not in his circumcision, verse 12. So I think the argumentation seems to be boom, 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 straightforward, for the reader, three times that Abraham mentions here that was in an uncircumcised state when God declared him righteous. Abraham was equivalent to a Gentile, is the argument. Abraham was equivalent to a Gentile without circumcision and without the law when he was justified. And so God could not have reckoned Abraham righteous because he had obeyed the law and performed Jewish rites like circumcision. God reckoned him righteous apart from the law, and he was righteous only because of his faith. That is Paul's point. Here's the central point for you this morning. It's in your bulletin. Justification by grace through faith precedes our good works. Justification by grace through faith precedes our good works. Point number one. The circumcision confusion. The circumcision confusion. You know, this is not a perfect analogy, but here we go. Last week I saw my nephew get married. His bride was beautifully adorned for the occasion. But did she believe that all that adorning was necessary to be acceptable to her husband? No, because his love for her and her acceptance of that love towards her established it. So as believers, we don't need to be, we, let me say this, we do need to be made acceptable to God, but it's not our dressing up that makes us acceptable. It is his love, grace, and gift of righteousness earned by Christ, received by us by faith that establishes our right standing with him. So yes, we need it to be adorned, but it's a gift received, not something we do ourselves. Even though the Bible teaches that God is our covering he makes his, and he makes his bride beautiful from her previous sin-stained condition. God's people are likened to a bride, right? There's something in us that wants to dress up and obligate his love towards us. Or even tell of our acceptance before God because it's because of our faith or our works. No, it's because of his grace. And so this is the fundamental message, though, of false religion. 
is to make yourself holy in order to be accepted and justified before God. And the storyline of Scripture has been leading up to the point of Christ. It's been the same. Who would, who would truly save God's people? And cleansing them of sin and saving them from God's wrath it has always been proclaimed and always been anticipated that the Christ would come and achieve this for God's people. But some folks want tradition more than Scripture. And it happens all too often in local churches like, like ours. They want their cultural comforts above the word. They want people to conform to them rather than to God. And what happens when you take a law that was supposed to be temporary and you make it into a forever command above the king's authority? Well, that's what's happened here with circumcision. This is the situation. Believers in the church believe that their right standing with God was tied to their physical observance of circumcision. Circumcision, following the law of Moses, became such an issue that a special council of the apostles and elders was, were called into Jerusalem to settle the matter. Remember that in Acts 15? And there was a unanimous decision. And a letter sent to all the churches was that obedience to Mosaic ritual, to the law of Moses, including circumcision, was not necessary for salvation. It is by grace through faith in Christ. The idea at its base is conform, be made holy through this, and then God will accept your faith. No. You see, the circumcision of male infants was a sign of Abraham's covenant that God would indeed bless him and bless the nation through his people. And it was commanded for the Israelites to be circumcised to remind them of the promise to Abraham. And Gentiles who were won over to the truth anticipating the Christ, also took on the signs and customs. But it was a temporary sign and seal of God's word, which I'll speak to more in just a moment. But something happened. Something, it's just something in us. We have to take something else and put it above and add it to the gospel. That is, if you, if you understand anything about the nature of man, we will, we will recoil towards the gospel of grace and have to add in a little bit of our works to it. Circumcision began to take on a different identity. Dr. Michael Byrd compiled a list of teachings that grew out of Jewish tradition and not out of Scripture, and he cites several of their uh, traditional writings that were not part of the Old Testament. Uh, and he notes that the ritual circumcision denoted a whole theological, I like how he put this, galaxy of meanings related to covenant and conquest, promise and proselytes, blessings and warnings, heritage and hope, purity and prosperity, faithfulness and favor, all tied to you've got to observe circumcision unless. Some sought, this is from their own writing, sought circumcision as the way of avoiding destruction. If I do that, then I won't face wrath. Uh, you know, warding away evil spirits if you're circumcised, purifying your soul somehow if you are circumcised, bringing perfection, serving as a symbol of eliminating sinful desires and even having improved hygiene and virility. For many, it was about their pride over those who were forming, former pagans. You must conform to our culture. Many didn't want to merely lose this old command, but enforce it even through the fulfillment, though the fulfillment had arrived in Jesus. Jesus is the true marker of God's people. In Christ, God's one true people are marked off first spiritually. 
Colossians chapter 2, many of you know that, shows how heart change, spiritual circumcision, replaced physical circumcision as the marker for God's people, just as the prophets preached that it would. Paul said, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands, but by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. And that's Colossians 2. So some erroneously thought that circumcision was an eternal sign of an eternal covenant. Paul, just like Jesus, teaches what God did in in Messiah Jesus, namely the marking off, the circumcision through Messiah spiritually had rendered physical circumcision inoperable and insignificant in the new covenant age, just as the prophets proclaimed. Let me illustrate this. Um, There's a great comedic bit with William Shatner. If you don't know who William Shatner is, ask your parents where he humorously chastises Star Trek fans, essentially saying to them, get a life, you people. You've taken something I did for fun and you've turned it into a huge waste of life. It's hilarious to watch him do that bit. Well, that's the feel here. The Judaizers took a temporary sign and seal and blew it up into something so much bigger than it was ever intended to be. Here's some application. Be careful of anything in your Christian faith that says, look at me, conform to me, rather than Jesus. Be careful of anything in your Christian faith that says, look at me and conform to me rather than believe upon the Lord Jesus. We do not need to convert people to our views on the mysteries of the end times. We don't need to convert people to our views of homeschool versus public school. We don't need to convert people to a Bible translation. We don't need to convert people to our styles of music. We don't need to convert people to niche niche theological persuasions that are not primary and plain to observe. The goal is to put your trust wholly and completely on the Lord Jesus Christ as a desperate, needy sinner. The goal is Jesus. Yes, there are There are things that we can observe. We're going to take Christ's side on plainly. But we have to make sure we're not putting obstacles in front of people in order for them to understand the security of Christ. Do you know Jesus? Here's the question I want to ask everyone in this room. Do you know Jesus is your only righteousness this morning? Do you know that, church? Second application is this. Keep coming back to the word as the sole authority. Keep coming back to the word of God as the sole authority. A, a careful reading of the scripture should be done through, lip, you know, like this, careful literary analysis, grammatical analysis, historical analysis, and lastly, Christ-centered analysis. My conclusions of the word, are they far off from what solid orthodox scholars have observed from the background? context, grammar, and genre? Or is this about man's tradition? Does my con- do my conclusions line up with Jesus' reading of the Bible? What about what the apostles said in my reading of the Old Testament? Am I aligning with them? 
Have I asked what this passage means in light of the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ? The Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus. We have to keep coming back to the Word as our authority, but we also need to check that we are reading it in light of the word of the, how the Word has presented itself plainly and in light of Christ's authority over that Word. Justification by grace through faith precedes our good works. Number two, the chronology. They're all C's this morning. The chronology of justification. The chronology. One of the greatest things about a good, great things about a good prosecuting attorney is how they present the timeline of events to prove their point. And Paul's doing that here. He's putting up a, a, a timeline for you. Maybe you can see the board. He's trying to draw for you what's happening in sequence um, and, and what's happening and what happened in God's work in Abraham's life. And what he and he's also doing here is to hope, how God opens wide the door of his grace for any sinner who would repent and believe. You can see that these are rhetorical questions being asked, meaning that there's an obvious answer to the, to the question. So let's turn them more into indicative statements then. Ready? Look at the text. So the, the blessing of justification is for any who have faith regardless of circumcision. And by the way, the psalm quoted in verse 8, blessed, happy is the man. He says, for any man, for any person whom God graces with his grace, for anyone who would turn to him in faith. Okay. Presupposition number one, look at the text. My, my Jewish debate partner, presupposition number one, we both agree that the word says faith was credited, accounted, imputed, gifted to Abraham for righteousness. Therefore, presupposition number two is in the manner of how he was made righteous. It was prior to his circumcision, verse 10. We both have the same, are, we, are you tracking with me? And if we agree, my friend, he says, that the order of events according to Genesis, then we also have to see that some 14 years later, that's when he received circumcision after he was justified. And so that means it was received not as an agent of making him righteous, not sacramental grace that Rome would put forth to you, not a requirement for acceptance before God, but as a sign and seal of God's word to him and future generations that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, finally in Christ alone. And so the justification, the making of someone righteous, the crediting of someone unto righteousness and the removal of their guilt, it came to this sinner, this ungodly pagan Gentile, Abraham, was saved by grace through faith alone. Verse 11, you can see 11a, circumcision is not a, is not a notorious marker. It's, it's, earn, earning, it's not earning acceptance before God. It did not add to Abraham's salvation whatsoever. It just merely attested to it, is what Paul is saying. It was not the basis of his righteousness, he didn't justify him because he was godly. God justifies the ungodly. It's a sign, the text says, a distinguishing mark as God set apart people. And so Israel, under the old covenant, pointing to the new, was set apart by a number of practices, including dietary laws and Sabbath observance and circumcision. These were never salvific. These never were towards their salvation. They were indicators of them being marked off unto God, that God uniquely laid claim on them, signed and sealed, and set apart for his expectations for them. 
This point about circumcision certainly undermines this, this idea that justification came first before, years before this sign and seal was given, undermines the teaching of Rome, which teaches that baptism washes away original sin and that it is regenerative. That is not in God's word, and it's principally against the teaching of the gospel right here in Romans 4. Justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. You cannot earn salvation or be right with God just because you come from a good family or you have grown up in a good national environment. Whatever you want to pick, it's only by grace through faith. And so you gain rightness with God by faith in the fact that Christ paid the price for your sin. And so Abraham could not claim righteousness except by faith. That sign and seal here, that seal is certified. It was, it was a, uh, a matter of certification. He was certified before the Lord by that mark, God said. Abraham was certified as a true child of God by the ordinance God gave him. And this was given for his descendants to follow, that they were part of his purposes, but they were to believe. They were to believe like Abraham. What good is this? You're just walking through the motions like a, like a dummy, like a dum-dum if you just take on this stuff. And you don't, that's the fundamental start of it all was Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, some denominations believe that baptism replaced circumcision and therefore we should baptize babies in hopes that they will one day see that it points forward for their need for faith. And I understand why they would say that. But Colossians 2 won't allow for it. It doesn't say baptism replaced circumcision. It says spiritual circumcision replaced circumcision. And so the sign and seal of the new covenant, according to Ezekiel, according to Jeremiah, according to Colossians 2, according to Ephesians 1, is the seal of the Holy Spirit. You know, my children are not physically birthed into the new covenant. They are not covenant children because they are my children. Until, not until they've been born again could we call them new covenant children. Children, young people, look at me. I want to talk to the kids in the room. Do you have faith in Christ? Have you repented of your sins? Repented of trusting in everything else? Hoping in something else? Hoping in mom and dad? Hoping that God would just look over your sin? He doesn't. But that God judged Christ in your place on the cross where he died and bore our sin debt and our guilt and our shame. It was on that cross that Jesus was made guilty of our sins, not because he had committed it, but because God had laid all of that sin upon him for any and all who'd repent and believe, and that God judged him in your place so that you could be cleansed and forgiven, and that he raised him on the third day for your justification. Children, have you put your faith in Christ? Parents, let me keep encouraging you. Keep talking to your kids just like that about the gospel. Talk to them about, regularly about the blood that was shed for them at Calvary and their need to come to Christ. And remember what Christ said to the children, let the children come to me. Lead them, point them regularly to Christ. Here's another here's a, uh, application. Remember that salvation is a gift. This is a given. It's a fundamental, but we need to keep saying it. Because some of us are just stubborn in unbelief that God would love us. That he would dare give someone as, as, as ugly as we can be. Some of you are dealing with that today. I have been there. Struggled to trust that God really cares for me. I'm telling you, God loves you. 
He sent Jesus for you. Some of you need to know that Christ loves you. And that salvation is a gift. And so you need to stop cleaning yourself up and just admit that he has loved you and has given Jesus for you to receive by faith. It's a gift in so many ways. You know, Abraham is not the central figure of Romans 4. You know, like, I like to imagine Paul beating his head on a desk sometimes with some of the interactions he must have gotten, you know. Um, it's all about Abraham. What? What did I say here at all that would communicate to you that this is about Abraham or that Abraham's the hero? No, you can't read. That's not what I said. You can't listen. He's not the central figure. God is the central figure in salvation. Salvation is of the Lord and from the Lord. Every part of Abraham's story and your story is a grace gift from God, my fellow brothers and sisters. He is sovereign and loving, and the result is Abraham's righteousness as well as ours by grace through faith. Many people are happy to be living their lives today the way they like. Certain they are okay with God. You go ask your neighbor if they're okay with God. And the majority of them, though lost and dying and going to hell, separate from Christ, will tell you, me and God are good. And they think we're superstitious. It takes faith to believe that. They're okay with God on the basis of what they see as their basic goodness. They have not remembered God's word says there are none who are righteous. No, not one. Many people are happy to be living their lives that way, but they're so wrong. And friends, what they don't understand is God is not the owner of a business obligated to pay us for works done. That is stupid. That is ridiculous. That is blasphemy. No, God is a loving ruler giving us a gift that we can only receive by faith. You have to believe upon Jesus. And to receive this gift, we must first realize the depth of our depravity. I do not do people any favors, and you don't either, if we don't tell them the truth about sin. Friends, we have to be aware of how sinful we are, how evil we are before God. So we realize, oh yeah, I'm in desperate need of Jesus. And God is so generous to give him. You know, do you see the evil of taking the life that God gave you and how you have worshipped yourself instead? Do you see the evil of the lust in your heart? Do you see the evil in your rude and condescending attitude towards other people? Do you see the evil in how you disobey your parents' good rules for your life? Do you see the evil in your grumbling and, and complaining despite the fact that you and I deserve God's wrath forever? Do you see how you hate God, you have hated his word, how you hate his rule and authority over you, and that this is why you would never choose him unless he first loved you and he first sought you. Today is the day we claim not our worthiness, but our unworthiness and repent, pouring our need out to God. And we turn in faith to Christ, whose atoning death covers our sins and brings forgiveness. It's only in Jesus. And then this leads us to accepting Christ's redemptive payment, which can only acquit us. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, just adding on to us holding to our works to some extent, he said, if, you're still, if you are still regarding baptism or the Lord's Supper or, quote, the Mass or christening or confirmation as having anything whatever to do with God's declaring you righteous, you don't understand being declared righteous as an ungodly one. 
and in the gospel, since the cross, you are not told first to cease, to cease being ungodly and then believe, but as ungodly to believe. We're not first told to cease being ungodly and then believe. We're told first to come as an ungodly sinner and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If we repent, we're repenting from trusting in ourselves. Maybe you're, you're looking for help to be a, a better Christian or you want to be a different, you want a different, different life. You know your, your life's just being regularly wrecked by sin. You need to, the first thing I just want to tell you, as I've been saying over and over again, is you need to look to Jesus and he will give you the power to change. You've got to come to him in faith and dependence and need. And I love that he would receive us and that he would help us, that he would pick us up and help us change our path. But you've got to look to Christ. No, don't look in the mirror. Look to Jesus. Church, neither baptism nor the Lord's Supper, upon both of which in distorted form thousands have rested as sacraments condemning them unto God, excuse me, commending them unto God, as Barnhouse noted, has power to give any standing whatever before a righteous God that belongs only to the shed blood of the Redeemer of guilty and hopeless ones such as we are all, end quote. Amen. Justification by grace through faith precedes our good works. Number three, last point. Last C here. The case in point. The case in point. Aren't you glad for examples? You know? Proof that Bill Walsh is the father of the modern NFL offense is how every offense runs a version of his West Coast offense today. He's the father of the West Coast and modern NFL offense. You know, James, James Brown's the godfather of soul. He laid down the template, right? We could just go on and on. Some of you are like, you didn't say my guy. I'm sorry. Those are the first two that popped in my head. Abraham is the case in point that God saves sinners by grace through faith alone. This is the mic drop, right? As they're arguing about the patriarchs. Paul just keeps blowing it up. Boom. Verses 11b through 12. Look at this. This was to make him the father of all who believe, but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised, who not only circumcised, but also can follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham while he was still uncircumcised. What's the consequence of God's grace to Gentile pagan Abraham? He doesn't restrict salvation, which comes from being declared upright to those who believe. Paul concludes that God intended all along for Abraham to be the point of union. The case and point for everyone, Jew and Gentile, physically marked or unmarked, who walk in the footsteps and are saved by grace through faith alone. The Gentiles, according to Genesis, the Gentiles, according to the book of Genesis, this is like mind-blowing, have first claim on Abraham. The Gentiles, according to Genesis, have first claim on Abraham, who was just like them when he was justified. Isn't that amazing? 
Since he was justified when he was uncircumcised, Abraham is the father of the uncircumcised who are saved by grace through faith. And so it eliminates, and some people hated this. Some people were culturally uncomfortable. Well, heaven help them. But here's the bottom line. Don't matter where you're culturally comfortable. It eliminates the category of proselyte, a second class of insiders within the Jewish and Christian assemblies. That's not there. You weren't this guy who got in late somehow in this way. No, it eliminates that. We're all saved by grace through faith. Again, Paul is pointing Scripture to Scripture and not tradition. The Mosaic Law, the Sinai Covenant, given to Moses and the people at Mount Sinai, was never given to save sinners from God's everlasting judgment. The promises of the Mosaic Law were limited to a single nation, to a temporal blessing, long life, and a geopolitical theocracy in the land that I'm giving you to possess. And so the Mosaic Law is much more specific and limited than the promise that God made to Adam and Eve after the fall, and he renewed it with Abraham of the promised seed. Prior to the Mosaic Law, prior to that covenant, is the Garden of Eden. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head and shall bruise his heel. That promise continues. Abraham is the ancestor of the new people of God, the ancestor of the uncircumcised Gentiles who come to have faith in Christ, granted righteousness by grace through faith. So here's the lesson. Abraham was the physical father of the Hebrew nation, yes, but his greatest legacy, his greatest legacy was his example of faith. Jews and Gentiles alike can follow in the footsteps of trusting God and his word, and that word is Christ. And so verses 11 and 12, he defines the messianic community of the new covenant age, the new people of God. The old covenant people was restricted to the Jews and then Gentile proselytes, but that is, this has radically changed. The Jewish people are no longer automatically the covenant community. Membership in the new covenant is based on faith in Christ. If you don't have faith in Christ, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity or tradition is, you are outside. You are not in. You must come through Christ. There's no national covenant sign like circumcision or the law, nor is Jewish ancestry, ancestry any longer sufficient. If you reject Christ, you will stand condemned. And so the people of God are composed of believing Gentiles and Jews. You know, this gets really practical. This even hits back what we confessed this morning in the confession of faith about how we see humanity, but even more so how we behave in the local church. We may never, because of the gospel of Jesus, look down on anyone thinking them as beyond the reach of God's grace. We can't look down on anybody. We're all lost and undone without Christ. I mean, who are you tempted to look down upon today because maybe they don't do things the way you do it? Church, we are all saved by grace. Who do you belittle in your mind and, and ignore because of their differences from you in the church right now? Have you forgotten that you have been saved by grace? How in the world does that mirror the gospel when we look at others that way, especially in the household of faith? Again, Barnhouse noted that Paul has turned the Jews' boast upside down. 
It's not the Gentile that must come to the Jew's circumcision for salvation. It's the Jew who must come to a Gentile faith, end quote. Isn't that something? We've all been rescued by grace. I mean, think about Abraham. God did not appear to Abraham, or you and I for that matter, because there was something good in our characters, but because it pleased God to do it. And one of the fundamental truths of the Bible is set forth in the fact that God did not choose Abraham because there was anything whatsoever in him that could have recommended him above his fellow pagans. Because it pleased God in his grace to appear to him, call him out for his own eternal purposes. That's all we have from God's word. If there had been anything, anything at all, in Abraham or in us to attract God, it would be that the perfection of God could be satisfied with imperfection in us sinful creatures. It's all of God's grace. So let me conclude on that. If you are truly saved, it is because you have been saved exactly as Abraham was saved. Case in point. You were dead in sins and trespasses, and by nature, children of wrath. And the God of glory somehow appeared to you, most probably as, the, as you encountered, obviously, as you encountered the word of God, and he opened your eyes to the nature of his love. He showed you that you couldn't lift yourself out by your own efforts. He would gladly count you as righteous, even in the midst of your ungodly state. If you stop trusting in yourself and put your trust in Jesus alone. All of this was apart from joining anything, apart from having anyone do anything to you. Not through baptism, not through anything in your character, not from some rite or ceremony or liturgy or good work. It was the sovereign God who reached out to you in the heart of his love, in the wonder of his grace, and brought you to life and immortality through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing God's word. That word came to you, and he pierced your heart. How could we not be humble? How could we ever have anything to boast in? I hate that ugly monster that raises its head in my heart. How about you? May God help us to hate it more today and love Jesus all the more. Let's pray. Lord, this blessing, it came, Lord, by grace. Received through faith. And everything good in our lives, Lord, has been a result of your first initial work in our lives. We have absolutely nothing to boast in. We were so good at sinning. And so, Lord, for that, we feel great shame. But you are so amazing in love. And all we can do is receive Christ by faith. We love you. Encourage us now as we observe the Lord's Supper. We look forward to seeing you soon, Lord, in Jesus' name.